Good morning, Anthem. Good morning. <laughs> I know, it's one of those awkward church things, right? Do we yell at the pastor right now or not? Um, so uh, we're, uh, while we're continuing in John, uh, just want to remind as we, we jump in this morning that we've been highlighting throughout that John says at the end of his gospel that the purpose of every episode, every scene, everything John records is so that we might find life in Jesus Christ. Again, John's, John's whole focus, his whole reason that God has given him to write this gospel, to record what he's recorded about Jesus is so that we might find life in Jesus. In the last few chapters, we've encountered people looking for life. And, and one of the things we've said is that Jesus says, you know, he knows what's in, in man. And so we've been encountering these men and women, and we've been seeing this, this restlessness in them for life. And as we've been walking through those episodes, we've been seeing as this restlessness is coming up in different ways, it's saying that there's kind of like this magnet in our souls, and that's, that's indicating to us, like, until we find our rest in God, we will be restless. Until we find life in God, we will be restless. And, and an interesting thing happened last week, because... You would think that as people then encounter Jesus and they experience life in him, that all of a sudden everyone would be like, oh, there it is, life, ah, rest, life, all right? But that's not at all what happens. Last week, we looked at the, the invalid who was healed by Jesus. And you, and you can imagine, like, nothing's a greater picture of, of the healing and the life that Jesus can bring than this physical healing where now this man can walk and everyone should be going, yes, there's a picture of this life. This is what Jesus brings. And everyone would celebrate, right? No, think again, right? Because everyone immediately, they're like, the religious leader's like, ah, no, that's not life. Life is keeping the law and Sabbath and everything else. And it's just this back and forth, like, debate over what actually is Life. And that's what we're starting to see now. Everyone fighting and having an opinion. What is life? And fighting with one another. What's going on? What is going on? Well, what's going to happen today, if you notice in the scripture reading, is that now Jesus is going to go into like an entire chapter of just, he's going to give a speech. It's kind of a monologue now. And we've been going through scenes where there's the kind of a narrative scene where there's interaction with people. Well, now it's just going to be Jesus speaking. And why does Jesus say what he's going to say? Because you may have heard the scripture read and thought, is Jesus kind of repeating the same thing over and over again? What's, what's he getting at here? Why is he saying what he's saying? Why well, think what's going on, why they're beginning to fight over what is life? Is because what Jesus is going to unpack is that at the root of it is because they have a wrong view of God. So you've been looking for so long now from the perspective of like people searching for life, but now Jesus is going to kind of zoom out and say, you need to know something about who I am and who God is, and unless you have these things down, you cannot know life. In fact, you'll miss it, even when it's right in front of you. In, in a way, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us what I would call a God 101 course. Uh, Jesus today is going to give us the basic foundations of what you might call a worldview, some of you may have heard that term before, a worldview, how we look at the world, how we put things together and understand everything. What Jesus is going to say is how you understand God is going to influence the entirety of your worldview. And, and what's interesting actually is the origin of the word worldview actually originally, before it was translated into English, was life view. If you want to have life, it, you, you have to look at the entirety of how you're looking at life. And what Jesus says is, I'm going to give you an entire new way to look 
at life from beginning to end. And here's why I think this is important before diving in. Is it, putting together a worldview, all of us in some way are, are it's like putting together a puzzle. Right? All, all of us are trying to kind of understand, especially right now in the midst of a rapidly changing world. What I'm hearing a lot is just we're, we're kind of we're exhausted, we're overwhelmed, we're confused, we're trying to understand what's going on. It kind of, as one author, he, he, he called one philosopher, called it liquid modernity. That everything all of a sudden is kind of liquid. There's what, what is truth? What is meaning? How, how should we live? What is right versus wrong? What is truth versus falsehood? How do we figure any of these things out? Let alone, how do we live life together? And that's why everything's so overwhelming right now. And what, what it's like is it's like trying to put pieces of a puzzle together. And, and let me just share this experience I had recently. I think it was a picture of what we all feel and why what Jesus is going to give us today can actually be incredibly helpful for kind of finding rest. And in the midst of a rapidly changing world, it's not about trying to be smarter and understanding everything, but actually staying sane because we understand actually what reality is in the midst of all of the craziness going on around us and also within us. Uh, I love to do puzzles with my, my kids and my oldest, Marilyn, she's actually better than me almost at putting together puzzles now, which is deeply humiliating. But, you know, we, we, we put together puzzles and, and when we're sitting there, you know, we're, we're, we'll be looking at kind of puzzle pieces and we'll be putting it together. And what we found was we have to put up a gate and we do it in my office because um, we can't let the two little ones in. Because when we let the two little ones in, what happens is first Calvin, he's, he's five years old and, and Calvin comes in and Calvin will just kind of take pieces and he's like, oh, what's this? What's this? What's this? He's like, that fits here. And and he'll like take a piece that, you know, doesn't quite fit into the puzzle and he'll just kind of ram it in there, right? And here, I remember once we were doing this like Elsa, you know, like Frozen puzzle and there was like a Elsa on a horse or something. And he took like the horse's tail and he like rammed it into the back of what would be Elsa's hair, right? And he's like, there. And I was like, I mean, not bad, not bad, right? Like, that's, that's decent, right? But it doesn't quite go there, right? And then, but then Clara, our littlest, she, she comes in, she's three, and she'll come in, and she just, like, I've always said, like, if I were to write a parenting book, it would just be, like, like the picture of Myra Cyrus on that wrecking ball, right? Like, I just come in like a wrecking ball, right? She just, she comes in, and she just comes in and just, like, kind of takes pieces and just starts, like, pushing them all around. Like, her fun thing is just to reorganize completely whatever we put together, right? And just kind of, rah, come in. And the reason why I tell you that story, because then what happens is Marilyn's like, no, right? And then they get into this fight, and then they'll start flinging puzzle pieces, and it's just over from there. The reason why I tell you that story is because I think in a vacuum, we tend to think putting together our worldview and kind of how we navigate the world, how we think about reality, is, is often how we think about like the kind of that vacuum of being able to sit back and just kind of looking at the puzzle pieces and figuring out how it all goes together. And we kind of figure out life as we go along. And, and then eventually we just kind of figure it out. But life doesn't exist in a vacuum. We don't exist in a vacuum. We exist in a world. And we exist in a world where what's happening is as we're trying to put things together, as you're trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus, as you're trying to read the Bible and go, what is it? What is truth here? What is good versus evil? What, what is God's mission for me? What's God's mission for the church? What's our calling in life? Where's this all going? As you're trying to put all that together, what happens is the world right now is coming in. People, influences in your life are coming in, and it's kind of like they're taking the puzzle pieces and they're just trying to like jam things together that don't go together. And they're trying to jam things together on what is sexuality and what is justice and what is, what is the purpose of human life and what is truth and all these things and sexuality and just ramming it together. In the midst of it, you're like, uh, does that go together? I don't know. 
And, and then also, in the, if that's not bad enough, then you have others who are just kind of coming in right now, and they're just taking the whole thing that you put together, and they're just going, it's all wrong, right? And they're just coming, and they, they seem to take glee in it, right? And just tearing it all apart. And, and right now, I think so many of us are going, I'm trying to look out at the world and figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a human being? And the tuzzle, or the, the tuzzle, the puzzle is being completely tossed up right now. It's a tuzzle. That's our state. <laughs> We're all in a tuzzle, right? <laughs> My worldview is so confusing right now. Um, and so here's what Jesus is going to do today. Jesus is saying you're fighting over how all these pieces go together. He's talking to the religious leaders. You can't even see life, and the reason is because you need to kind of step back, and I need to reveal to you some basic truths. You know, one of the tricks to building a puzzle, right? Everyone knows this. If you don't, I don't know how you missed this. But the trick is to build the, the, the framework, right? The outline of the puzzle, right? And, and what Jesus, here's what I would say. What Jesus is going to do here is it's kind of like he's building the four sides of the puzzle of a worldview. And, what, and he's going to say this all revolves around me. And if you can build these four, then what will happen is as you're going through life, if those are set, then as you're going through life, all of the picture is going to become, come into focus as you're going through life. And so what Jesus is going to do today is he's going to give us that framework. He's going to begin to give the outline of the puzzle. And so what Jesus says is essentially, here's God 101, and the key to life is seeing that it all comes from me. Okay? So first we're going to look at why does God matter? The second, the God who is... And then third, letting God be God in a godless age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we want, in the midst of so much seeming just up and down, the ground seems shifting under our feet, feels like we're lost in the sea, it feels like we're right at the cross currents of these choppy cross currents. The world around us, Lord, there's so many imageries that come to mind. The compass of life is just spinning around in circles, Lord. In the midst of all this, Lord, would you ground us this morning? Or as we dive into this just unbelievably dense and deep revelation that you've given us of who you are. Lord, that we want to just, this won't just be theological or intellectual games. Our, our goal wouldn't just be to be smarter, but our goal would be to be a people who are saved. And in being saved and one with Christ, we would stay sane in the midst of a world that's going chaotic. And our souls would be grounded. And that we would find rest. And as we find that rest in you, Lord, that we would find life. And Lord, from that, would that lead us to go out into a restless world? Would that lead us to go out into a world that is so confused and is lost? And Lord, would we bring the clarity of the gospel? Lord, may that first come true in our souls. Would you do this, Spirit, through this word? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, why God matters, matters. <laughs> having issues today, guys. Uh, well, last week, again, we looked at the previous scene where Jesus healed the, the, the man who was an invalid, and he did it on the Sabbath, and this made the religious leaders upset because they claimed that to do healing on the Sabbath was work, and so you don't work on the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus responds, though, in verse 17 by saying, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is John 5, 17, right before our passage. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, that's an interesting response, right? They're like, you're healing on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be doing work. And his response is, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, Jesus is kind of hitting on, I think, two things. One, in the context, the, the Jewish leaders, there's was, there was a lot of writing in um, Midrash and different Jewish sources where they're debating how is it that God could rest after creating the world, yet the world now is continuing and everything is dependent upon God, and how is God actually resting in the middle of that? Do you see what I mean? Like, there was a lot of debate about that. How could God be resting in the midst of he created the world and now it's dependent on him, and so if God didn't keep working and he let go, then everything would just fall apart. And so this was a debate amongst the Jews, and Jesus seems to be using that debate to say, in effect, listen, I'm, I'm not denying that we're called to keep the Sabbath, but I am going to redefine it. But specifically, he says, whatever it means for God to be working applies to me. He says, whatever, you guys can go work that out. You can try to, by the way, what does it mean that God is resting on the Sabbath? Well, he rests in himself and delights in himself. But what Jesus is pointing out here in his language, he's saying, whatever it means for God to still be at work, it applies to me. In other words, Jesus is claiming he is God. It's a very Jewish way of doing this. He's framing it in a way that they would have understand in the first century. Jesus isn't concerned to use language and phrasing that we in the modern world would immediately get. He's making sure they get it, which is why they responded in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, catch that detail. What really triggered them was not just they called himself God, but he doesn't say God is working until now and I am God. But my father is working till now, and I'm working. Why does he phrase it that way? Because Jesus wants to redefine how they think of God. And see, this is the key to the life that they are missing. I mean, the irony here is that in the midst of debating about how to find rest and whatnot and the Sabbath and everything, Jesus is essentially saying, this is how you find life. This is how you find rest. You're trying to find it in all these different ways, but the reason why you can't see it is because you have some wrong idea of who God is, and the only way you can know who God is is through understanding my relationship to the Father. He says it changes everything. And what he's going to go on to say here is one of the richest Trinitarian passages in all of Scripture. Trinitarian, the Trinity, Revealing what God is like in himself and the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, often we tend to think this is just kind of, you know, stuffy theological stuff. What we'll see is this is absolutely key to being able to put together that puzzle and be able to frame your life in the reality of who God is. And not just be smarter, although great, to stay sane in the midst of whatever life puts in your way. Now, before unpacking what Jesus says, let me just hit on this. Why does it matter that God is who he reveals himself to be? I think 
what's going on right now? I want to put my finger on something. And by the way, SALT students, if some of you are at the retreat, you heard a little bit of this stuff at the retreat in the fall. I didn't know you guys would be back from spring break, so apologies. <laughs> but it's good. Re repetition's good. Uh, I want to put my finger on, I think, what we might be feeling that's going on right now. The, the chaos right now that is going on in the world, I believe, and I'm going to come back to this, is because of the fact that we are finally... We are finally experiencing the reality of what happens when we begin to live, not just talk, as if God is not real. In other words, what we're going to see is why it matters is the entirety of everything begins to unravel. There was actually an unlikely prophet of this at the end of the 19th century. His name was Frederick Nietzsche. Some of you may have heard him. Philosophy classes, don't worry about it. Uh, but here's what he said. You may have heard the phrase, God is dead, right? That was his famous phrase, God is dead. And we tend to think that that was said as if it was kind of like this, this, this great triumphant, like, God is dead, right? Nietzsche himself was an atheist. But he didn't say it like that. In fact, what he did, in the context, it was a warning, it was not just some triumphant statement. It was a warning. It was a warning to modern man. And it was a warning that what happens if you actually live as if God is dead? Do you realize the consequences? Here's what he says. It's in his book, The Gay Science, translated in modern terms, Happy Wisdom. Uh, but he says this, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him you and I. Now, what he's doing here is he's putting this into the voice of a madman. He comes into the midst of this Victorian village where it's all these modern people who have begun to keep the morals of God, who still go through the like, societal expectations of who God is and the etiquette, but they actually don't believe there's a God anymore. And so he's kind of going and talking to those people. He said, all of us are his murderers, but how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? What's he saying here? He's using language to say here, if you get rid of God, do you realize if you get rid of God, then all of reality as you know it completely changes? That everything flows from the fact that there's a God who created the world, which means that there's, as we'll see, meaning. Which means then if there's no meaning, then how do you actually know anything? How do you know truth? If you don't know truth, how do you figure out how you should live and what's right versus wrong? Who you should take care of? Who you should deny? Where is this whole thing going? How do you have hope for tomorrow? How do you know gravity will hold everything together when you wake up tomorrow? Do you realize if you get rid of the one constant in the universe, it all comes undone? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not, or do we hear nothing as yet of the voice of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's to decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. What he's saying is, do you not realize, you have not realized yet, 
the consequences of actually believing this. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? In other words, how do you deal with guilt? How do you find righteousness? How, how do you figure out what's right or wrong? How about when somebody wrongs you, what do you do? How do you, how do you judge? How do you have righteousness? How, how do you have anything that you build anything on? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never, you have to become God. Catch that? Must we, we must become God. There has never been a greater deed in whoever is born after us. For the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. In other words, what's going to replace the old religions? Who's going to construct in their place? And then he says, lastly, saying, we haven't realized this yet, but the day will come when we will reap this. He's writing this about 1880. I have come too early. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. What Nietzsche is saying, I believe here, is this word that essentially is almost prophetic. What he's saying is if you remove God, if you just completely try to get rid of, you're going to get rid of the entirety of the puzzle. And what he's saying here is that if you don't have God and you don't have meaning, then you, you can't figure out what is valuable. And if you don't have meaning, who gets to construct meaning in its place and who gets to say what is valuable? Who gets to say what is right and wrong? All of reality is undone. So whether these religious leaders here in John's gospel who have the wrong idea of God or in our modern world where we tend to actually pendulum swing to the other side, which is that there is no God, God matters. And if you pull out God and you're consistent with that, it all begins to come undone. And so Jesus says, listen very carefully to what I have to say about myself because it changes everything. The God who is. Jesus' speech here, his monologue, is going to take up the rest of the chapter. And at first, again, it can almost seem like he's saying the same thing again and again, but read carefully. Read carefully. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, I'm going to read through, I'm going to unpack, because what Jesus does in verse 19, he says, so he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. In other words, he's one saying, bingo, you got it. I claim to be God. <laughs> He's not denying it. He's saying, you got it. But he's saying, I am God and I perfectly reveal God. I'm from my Father and I perfectly reveal God. And he gives us four, four statements. See that word four? He's going to do it four times. I'm going to unpack each of them quickly and I'm going to bring it all together. What, what does this have to do? How's Jesus framing the God who is and how's that frame reality for us? Okay, so verse 19, the second part then, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 
See, what he's saying is like father, like son, right? So what he's saying there is that my will is divine. Jesus is saying my will is divine. My will is conformed to the father's will. We have the same will. And so when you see me act, you see the father. I perfectly reveal who God is. And I act in holiness, in righteousness. Then verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he's doing. Here he shows the nature of the relationship between the father and the son. So now he's beginning to kind of pull back the curtain on what is it like within the relationship of the father and the son. And he says, the father loves me. Part of the Father's will is that he loves me. And then out of him loving me, then my will also is turning in love towards the earth. In other words, what this means is that the reality as we know it has flown, has come out of an overflow of who God is. And at the core of who God is, is he loves himself. He loves his glory. He loves his holiness. He loves his righteousness. The implications of this, man, this this passage could be hours long, but I won't do that to you. But first implication, if God acts in accordance with his will and his will is informed by love, then that means reality is created out of God's love for himself. If you've been here before, you've heard me unpack this more. You can go back to the first sermon in this series, but the implications of that are massive massive. The second implication, the actions of Jesus reveal the love of the Father, perfectly reveal. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, it says the same word for the word for exegete or exegesis. Have you ever heard that word? It means to perfectly unpack or explain something, draw out of something. What Jesus is saying is, when you see me, I perfectly exegete, I perfectly explain, I perfectly uh, unpack what God is like. And so if you want to know God, you must come to me or else you're going to get a a wrong view of who God is. Only I perfectly can reveal what God is like. Third implication, God's love for us is an overflow of a love for himself. God's love for us and for his people is an overflow of his love for himself. It means it flows out of his eternal will, who he is. In other words, no matter how, what state you woke, in, woke up in this morning, whatever doubts you have, whatever experience where you feel like you're so far from God, but you've, you've come to God by faith and you're clinging to Jesus. In the midst of it, whatever you feel, here's the thing. God does not fall out of love. God doesn't just, he's not just overwhelmed by the situation. God's love is eternal. And when God places his love and he places his will and he directs it, he is consistent all the way through. That grief is that something you can build an identity on and jesus says that the father's love for him will lead to greater things it's like he's not done yet god this is what my father is like with me but he's not done yet he says in greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel and then he says what are those verse 21 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will he said the end of god's loving will god is reality of love and out of that loving will when he acts it will come to completion that will lead to those who come to him being resurrected and that means that they will be brought to everlasting life in him It's how the story ends. 
Life with God forever. Now, the question is how? How will God do that? Well, what will it look like? Like, will Jesus just kind of resurrect us and then it just kind of looks like more of the same forever, right? It's kind of like on your worst day and imagine if God's like, you're resurrected to this forever and you're like, I want to opt out, right? Like, is it more of this chaos? No, that's why he says the next thing in verse 22 and 23. He says, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He says, God judges rightly, righteously. And the righteous son will judge. God is righteous. He is holy. And in his love, he's created a world. And then he sends his son who is righteous into that world in accordance with his will. And the son has the same will. And then what he does is he goes to the cross in order to save his own. And those who come to him by faith will be resurrected in him. And then, but then that son who is righteous, he's the one who can say what is righteous versus unrighteous. In other words, it's not going to be just more of the same. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a burning away of all that is unrighteous. So that all that is eternity is a return to the holy, righteous, loving presence of God. And Jesus sums it up by saying in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says, I alone can make known these things. I alone am the one who is God. I alone am the one who knows that eternal love. I am the one who's come into the world in human flesh to reveal to you the perfect character of God and reveal to you how that is good news and not a threat because he will see his will through. And he says, if you believe these things, you will have life, not death, starting now. Now, how do we put these all together? I said this is kind of like, you know, almost like God 101 or Worldview 101. How do we put these together? So this is where Jesus' through line, you're like, Jesus, what, what, how, how do these all go together? Well, I want to reformat them just quickly for how we put the sides together on the puzzle. Now, this is basically what's right here is exactly what you would get if you were going to a philosophy class and we were going to go, these are the components of how you think about the world and how you navigate in the world. And what Jesus does right here is he says, I am God and I'm revealing to you in me, here's reality itself. And so here are the four points, the four aspects of a life view. I think that's what I put up there, life view. First one is reality. Reality. What is, or I'm going to put the fancy words up there. Don't worry about them if you don't know them, but ontology. I'm just for the person out there who's like, oh, yes, scratch that itch for me, right? All right, so if you're that person, great. Uh, but what this means is like reality itself. It means we are in a world where we are created, which means we have a creator and we are creatures, which means there is a design because it flows from a person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which means that everything is, that is created has been given a purpose at the point that it is created and is a reflection of his glory and his holiness and his goodness and his love. Which means, here's the thing, everything has meaning. There are beautiful things. There are true things. There are good things. There are things that make our hearts come alive because we are made for certain things. But if God is dead, then we must construct meaning for ourselves. 
if there's meaning that's in the world that we've been given. But then if we say, no, the world is not created, then we must construct that meaning for ourselves. There's a uh, famous phrase by philosopher David Hume. He says, an is doesn't necessitate an ought. What does he mean by that? An is doesn't necessitate an ought. In other words, something that is, let's take a third trimester baby in the womb. An is does not necessarily tell you what you ought to do with that baby. If you, everything is merely accidental atoms, proteins that came together that eventually accidentally became us, then who gets to say what the value and meaning of what those proteins come together to form is? I think this is on my mind. I saw some, you may have seen the thing going around of the DC, the babies, the five babies that were found. Whew, I saw the pictures. And I was just, I was going through the comments afterwards, and there's just, like, babies, clearly babies, no question what you're looking at. A baby still, like, in the, in the sack that's taken out, and you're, you're looking at it going, that's clearly the Imago Dei, that's clearly the image of God, that's clearly a human being. And in the comments section, it's like, it's, it's not a baby. It's not born. Just an embryo. It's just proteins. It's like I'm reading it going, how in the world can we be writing this right now? But of course we can write it because if we get to construct reality and construct meaning, then we can define what is what. But Jesus steps in. He says, don't be confused. He steps in. He says, I have given value to every human life because you are made in my image. And see, unless you can stand on that ground, then do you get, that's just talking about babies. Then you've got to talk about sexuality. You've got to talk about gender. You've got to talk about all the other things down the road from that. In other words, it all unravels because an is cannot necessitate an ought. But Jesus says, you are, and I made you in my image, and this is how I value you, and I value every human life. And so we don't have to mess around with going, well, is love just some transcendent idea, some ideal that we hold to, and it's just, you know, biology or whatnot. It says, no, God says it is the reality you were made for with me. It exists. All of reality is a reflection of a holy God created by him for a purpose. Now, how do we know that purpose? Second part of a life view. What Jesus said back in verse 24 by the way, this is, again, flowing from what Jesus said. I've just unpacked in the verses before, uh, that we went through. The second part is revelation. Jesus has just said in verse 24 that you, I have to reveal these things to you. Now, Jesus, this is the one aspect of this Jesus doesn't unpack a ton in this passage, but he does a lot throughout the rest of John's gospel. The fact that he says, I'm the revelation of who God is. It started the gospel with, he is the word, Right? You're going to get this a little bit later in John 14, 6, and 7, probably the most famous, when Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, I am God, and so what I speak is true, holy, righteous, and good. 
saying, if you want life, if you want truth, if you want rest, you can only get it through me. But Jesus also then is the word become flesh. It's not just kind of tra- like up here in the clouds, like, and you're like, what does this mean? Jesus came as in human flesh, fully man, so that he might embody, it might model for us what it looks like. Jesus is the immoral exemplar. That's not all Jesus is, but he's definitely not less than that. And so when we look at Jesus, he says, this is what it looks like to be a human being who's fully alive, filled with God's spirit, with a purpose in life. Lay, I have something to lay my life down, not just fight all the time for my rights, but actually lay my life down for something eternal that matters. When I look at Jesus, honestly, I'm like, I want that. Jesus brings God's revelation to a culmination. See, Jesus isn't just the interpret, interpretive key to reading all of Scripture, which he is, but he's also the interpretive key for understanding all of life. But if God is dead, how can we know what is true? Who gets to decide how to decide? Think about it. If everything is constructed and there isn't a creator, then who actually, what's happening right now, and some of this I'm just trying to unpack for you guys to go, oh, now I understand what's going on in the world around me. Because I think so many times we just kind of fight it, and it's like there's a reason why this is happening. Because if everything's constructed and there is no God and there is no meaning that's been given to us, then someone got to construct meaning along the way. Somebody got to say that that baby in the womb matters. Somebody along the way got to say male or female. Somebody got to, the idea is they got to construct all this. Well, if they got to construct it, then the question is who got to construct it? And why them? And now we must tear it down. Starting to sound like today? There can be no resolution, only perpetual revolution. That's why Jesus says, you must start with me or else there is no passing from death to life, only death. And listen, often this is why difficult things, when we teach them from God's word, I just want you to hear, when we, when we come across difficult things in God's word, I, we don't try to conform God's word to what we want. We have to conform our desires to God's word. And there's nothing harder. If you're not walking in the flesh, if you're, you have to be walking in the spirit. You have to be humbled before Christ to go, this is the reality you've revealed, and how do I conform myself to this reality? See, here's the thing. There's so many things right now, and you will find a lot of Christian teachers who are willing to say essentially this, yeah, but did God really say? And I go, that sounds a lot like Genesis 3. In fact, that's exactly a quote from Genesis 3. <laughs> and it's the wrong person saying it. It's Satan. It's the serpent. Did God really say? And right now, there are a lot of things that you essentially just have to read God's word and you go, He did. He did. My job, our job as Believers, as those who are walking with Christ, as those who are sharing Christ, is not to be God's PR agents. But to take God's word, to read it, to understand it, and then to winsomely, humbly, but to live it out and to work to conform our wills to it. Then, what does it reveal? Righteousness, the third part. This means ethics. How do we live? 
This is why what Jesus is saying is key. He says he is God, he's holy, he's righteous, he reveals righteousness, and his will is aligned with the Father's because he acts, lives in accordance with God's righteousness. Because he is God, he exegetes or displays God's holy, righteous character, and he reveals good versus evil. But also, because he's fully man, he's able to also point at man and exegete man's sinful, unrighteous behavior. So many of the debates raging right now Boil down to trust in God when he says how we ought to live. A few, a few weeks ago, just to put some flesh on this, some of you were there at Salt on Thursday night. I, we looked at the mantra, love is love. And we looked at whether God is love or is love God. Which is reality? See, we went to First John, and it says God is love. And so if God is love, then God actually defines what love is. And then John goes on to say right after that, therefore God is love, therefore love in this way. And also don't love in this way. In other words, you see what flows there, exactly what's here, which is the reality everything's created from is God is love. He created reality. So then God has revealed that he is love, and he's created everything out of reality. And he's revealed what it means for our relationships, especially sexually with one another. And then from that, he says, so therefore this is what love is and what love is not. He reveals righteousness, reveals ethics. It all flows together. And so he does things when he says what God is not. And I, I use the illustration, like, if I go in and, like, my son is, like, sitting there just, like, hitting our daughter with, like, a toy truck, right? And I go, I'm like, buddy, that's not loving, right? And then he goes, it's my definition of love. I'm like, well, I guess that's love, right? Like, that, no, you don't do that. You go, that's not love. That's not loving yourself. That's why God, John says right there, this is what love is, and this is how you don't hate your brother and you love him. And why does God do this? Again, it's like we have to say this in some way so forcefully right now in our culture, but the reason why is because God is saying, Jesus is saying here, I want you to have life. Versus death. Lastly, the result, the last R. Where is all this going? This is teleology, telos, the end. Notice how Jesus, this is purpose in life, mission in life. Notice how Jesus connects the resurrection and judgment to his own will in verses 21 and 24. He says he raises whom he will, and he judges whom he will. Because Jesus is saying, if God is righteous and has created reality and I perfectly reveal his righteousness and my will is aligned with righteousness, then I will only resurrect and judge righteous those who are righteous. The question is not, will you be judged? The question is, in whom will you be judged? And what Jesus is setting up here is he's saying there is a bar of righteousness that God will not just minimize, God will not just get rid of. And why? Because he's saying he's not going to unleash unrighteousness and chaos into eternity, into his presence. God isn't going to unleash it because he does not desire death forevermore, but to rid of death. And so where this is going is ultimately a resurrection to life forever in God's presence of joy with him forever. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But here, that's what that is right there, right? Philosophy 101, 
God 101, right there. Jesus just took us to school, all right? And again, it's not just fancy theology to be debated. It's life. Jesus is saying this is the reality. This is the puzzle. This is, this is the outline of how you should look at life, that I have created the reality of the world that you live in. I am where that reality flows from. And therefore, I have, I have also then revealed what that reality is so you might find life and live accordingly. And he reveals how to live accordingly, what is righteous, good versus evil. And then ultimately, where is it all headed? What's the result? Resurrection. Righteousness in God's presence forevermore. The question is, do you know this God? Do you know this Jesus? Because it changes everything. And we need this reality, this life view to be true in us before we can live it out or offer it to others. So let's go there quickly to end. Letting God be God in a godless age. Jesus continues in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I read that as one big clause, by the way, that does flow in verse 30. Don't get caught up on your paragraph breaks in your modern translations. We'll see next week even how that flows even more logically, starting at verse 31. But I read that all together because Jesus is saying the only hope in life that we have is him. Jesus created reality. And the fact that God created, here's the thing, the Christian worldview, this is how I would say it really firmly. The Christian worldview is inescapable. It is reality as God has created it. Jesus says God is not dead, but because of him, for those who trust him, death is as good as dead. Scripture says that our guilt is something real because we violated, rebelled against someone real. It doesn't matter how much we try to redefine truth, it is stubborn, it stands, it's reality. Guilt is real, righteousness is real, the resurrection is real. The Father in his love Though sent his righteous son into an unrighteous world to save. What it means is if we will acknowledge our sin, our unrighteousness, and what that means is where we, we live against the reality of what God has created. If we will do that, then God will then, if we turn from unrighteousness and repent, repent means to turn from unrighteousness to trust Christ by faith. We can be made righteous in him. And God's Spirit, using God's Word, will conform our will to be more and more like Christ throughout the rest of our life. And what Jesus is saying is that is the pathway to life. Are there ways that right now you know that it's just not working? 
Are there ways that right now that what you're wrestling with is you're wanting to come up against that and you're saying, I can't find life, I can't find life, then do you know this Jesus? Do you know this God? Have you come to him to find life? I do wonder how many of us are still living in that Jesus just described the tomb, and if we're in Christ, we're supposed to have walked out of the tomb, but I wonder how many of us are still living in that tomb, the proverbial tomb, because we haven't taken hold of one of these truths. In other words, we can claim Christ, but then live functionally as if God is dead. And right now, you'll get so swept up in the times. So which, think about these this week. Reality. Are there created realities, things that you know that God in your conscience has revealed and you're coming up against them again and again and again and you're fighting them? I gave this a few weeks, uh, like a month ago. I'm daring enough to do it again. My favorite joke is, what did the fish say when it ran to the wall? Damn, okay? So, <laughs> why is that funny? And yes, it's funny. I know we're in church and I said that word. But why is it funny? Because it's bringing together two potential meanings. One is, and this is what it looks like when we come up against reality. We have two possible choices. We can come up against reality and how God has created the world, and we can either rail against it, and we can yell, darn it, right, and rail against that wall and say, how could you put this here? Or we can accept that it is a dam that God has put in place as a boundary, and we can repent of trying to go that direction and go the other direction and find life. Those are the two paths when we come up against reality. And so are there areas, realities you're coming up against? And instead of railing against God, it's time to humbly come before him and ask for a contrite heart that would turn. Second revelation, are you restless because you're attempting to make God's word say what you want it to, but it won't? One of the things I shared when I taught at Salt was that I didn't, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Sexuality was among many of the things that I came into Christianity in college going, I did not have a biblical worldview at all. And I tried, guys, I tried so hard to make the Bible say what I wanted it to say. I tried to make the Bible say what I want to say on gender, on sexuality, on all kinds of things. And I'm telling you, you can't. Are you trying to make God's word say what it won't? If at the end of the day, God always agrees with our opinion, then God is not God. Our opinion is God. I would ask, read and ask God to give you like lenses when you come to his word of trust and truth. God, help me trust you as I encounter your truth, even when it causes me to have to repent and conform myself to something that seems so alien to me. It's life. Righteousness. Where do you know you are living unrighteously or attempting to find righteousness apart from Jesus? Here's what I mean. Where, one, there's obviously living unrighteously and going before the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, I'm just living unrighteously and I'm not willing to bring this before you. I'm trying to hide it. I'm trying to keep it on the side. And I'm dying because it's unrighteousness. The other half of this is that in our day, I think one of the things that's speeding up is the way to be righteous is to join in the revolution against whatever has been constructed of the past. Again, if everything's constructed, then right now you tear everything down and because you say, who got to construct this? And then follow me here. What it means is that in our day and age, the way you show yourself to be righteous is that you tear down what exists. 
and you might be there. And here's what I'm saying. You do not become righteous by tearing down the church. It doesn't make you righteous to tear down the word of God. It doesn't make you righteous. And here's the thing. I know that there are things. It doesn't make you righteous to join in a political cause. It doesn't make you righteous to join in the right political party. It doesn't make you righteous any of these things. Christ's righteousness is alone the righteousness that you need. And I'm fearful that because of the fact that this is how right now it's in the waters of how we become righteous, we're settling for a lesser righteous, of getting busy and joining in a cause. And if I do this, then I'll show I really am righteous. But it is a righteousness that will fail you and will leave you empty. It's also a righteousness that will leave you, then when you're done tearing one thing down, you're going to have to find something else to tear down because you always have to find something righteous. And that's why it's like the Old Testament temple courts where we're going around always trying to find a new sacrifice. Be careful. We have to contend and fight for specific things, but be careful you don't find your sense of righteousness in it. That's the difference. Lastly, result, where is your hope found? Again, we've hit this a couple times in the series. Where are you finding that sense of heaven on earth? Where's that, like, whether it's utopia, whatever you want to use, where are you finding? What are you looking towards? Take time this week, literally write out like your obituary. Write out like what, what is the thing that you're giving your life for? What is the thing you're going to be remembered for? What's the thing you're investing in for when you're on the other side in eternity? And is your life on the path to making the most of investing this life for a kingdom impact that lasts forever? Jesus invites you to that. that that's, the great, that's the great quest. That's a great adventure that God's inviting us all on. So I'm going to land there because with that, I want to invite you to stick around for the brunch. I know I went a little bit long. I knew I would. I apologize again. We, here's why I want you to stick around. We are unpacking our vision for the next five years, and we, one of the things that why I wanted to unpack some of this is these are the kind of truths that we're going to be taking hold of. These are the truths in Christ. This is the reality of the world that we actually live in. In the midst of the storm, these are the things that we stake our claim and we hold on to in the midst of it. And right now, we are going out every single day, every single week, where more and more we're finding the world around us is restless and trying to find this life, and they're trying to find it in all kinds of ways. And we need to learn how to articulate the gospel and bring the gospel to the world around us. And that is what we want to do over the next five years. We want to focus on where are the lost, where the restless, where is the restlessness within us in the church, and how do we find renewal in Jesus Christ? How do we find salvation? How do we find truth? How do we find hope? How do we find life? And settle for nothing less. To be bold, to not give up, to not back down, to not withdraw, but to stay sane by finding life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. When so much is chaotic around us, when so much is undefined, we find ourselves in the midst of just this fervor that's all over the place. And Lord, we're trying to make sense of the world. Lord, would you anchor us here? Jesus, would you anchor us in the truth of who you are? Anchor us in the fact that you are the God, the God who is holy, righteous, eternal love. And out of that, you created a world 
that is hardwired with your glory, that's hardwired with your righteousness, that's hardwired with your holiness, that's hardwired with your love. And Lord, that all that you have revealed, creation shouts it, your word shouts it, what it means to live in light of it. And so, Lord, would you teach us righteousness? Lord, would you teach us to be a people of peace, to be a people who rest in you? But also, Lord, who are bold in making you known and living in the midst of a world that leads towards unrighteousness to stand in righteousness. Lord, how to strengthen one another in that. And where we're called to as a church and as individuals for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you, thank you that you've anchored us in your word. These things that philosophers have talked about for all of time, Lord, you made known because you were, you are, and you will forever be. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.